these governments have been trying for many years to diversify their sources of revenues, but they face the tension that when the oil price is low, they haven't got money to spend on diversification. And when the oil price is high, life is, is easier and there's not so much urgency to do things. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. We're bringing you a new series of episodes focused on how countries and regions are dealing with the energy and climate impacts of COVID-19. This week, we asked experts from India, China, and the Middle East to share the biggest changes they see happening in energy markets, how governments are responding, and what we might expect from regional and international engagements. I'm Ben Cahill, Senior Fellow of the Energy Program at CSIS, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Robin Mills from Kamar Energy. We're very pleased to have you join us today, and today we're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on the energy sector in the Middle East. So Robin, you're based in Dubai, and to start off, I thought we could just talk about what things are like in Dubai these days. We've heard that Dubai's been quite effective with the lockdown, the measures have been strict, but can you just tell us what's the economic mood there? What's the sense of when things will start to normalize? Well, as you say, the measures in Dubai have been pretty strict. Uh, we had a, a near total lockdown uh, through much of April and uh, not allowed out except with uh, except with kind of government permission for essential things like shopping at, at a uh, grocery shopping at intervals, uh, emergency medical stuff, and um, uh, and essential workers, and that was that was about it. That's now been partly relaxed, so um, places like restaurants and malls are now open, but with strict social distancing li- limits on uh, on attendance and so on. You know, I think overall the uh, situation has coped. Um, fairly well, you know, as, as well as anybody could expect in the circumstances. Um, but in terms of the economics, it's, you know, it's been a very significant hit, right? I mean, if you think about Dubai as a city, Dubai as a global city, it's a hub of travel and tourism and, and business and finance and, and trade and so on. And those are all things, of course, that have been very badly affected by the, by the coronavirus uh, lockdowns. Um, you know, Dubai is obviously has the world's busiest international airport by, by some measures, has one of the world's leading airlines. Um, and of course, they're, they're hardly able to fly any flights at the moment. Um, there are some hopes of perhaps being able to resume flights in, in July to some destinations. Uh, you know, we'll have to see. Um, but obviously, this is a, a significant shock to the, the cities uh, and, the whole, and the country's economic model, along with the other parts of the shock, like, of course, as, as we'll talk about, the, the crash in oil prices. Yeah, so the whole world is being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, but the Gulf states are really uniquely vulnerable, I think, because of their dependence on the oil sector and the share of oil and and government revenues and export revenues. How bad do you think the economic impact will be for the Gulf states and Iran? And, you know, we're seeing lots of reports of problems for uh, expatriate workers in the Gulf, people losing their jobs and having to leave the country. How much of this pain is actually coming from the non-oil sector, especially in a place like Dubai, which has a more diversified economy? Uh, can you give us your sense of what, what the next year is going to look like for the Gulf states? Yes, well, the impact is like it's sharply differentiated. The nature of the impact is sharply different, differentiated across the, the different countries around the Gulf. Um, you know, some are, are very oil dependent um, and some are not so much and some are more dependent, some make more use of international links and tourism and business and so on and, and, and others not. So there's a sharp differentiation, which we'll, I'm sure we'll cover. But if I think about the Gulf states and Dubai in particular, you know, there's a very high share of expatriate 
workers. Um, in the UAE as a whole, it's perhaps around 85%, and in Dubai, even over 90%. Um, and these are people at all levels of society. Um, you know, some are manual workers, construction workers, people working in shops, uh, restaurants, and so on, um, up to international, uh, uh, highly mobile, well-paid investment bankers, international lawyers, um, people running top businesses, and so on. Um, you know, obviously all those people are affected in, in different ways and a lot of them are, are people who are keeping the country running as they are around the world in terms of keeping deliveries going and, and essential services going. Um, so this is you know, particularly true of Dubai, but it, it affects the other Gulf states. Um, some of the countries, of course, have tried to take advantage of this to um, increase the amount of local labour being used in, in their economy, Saudi Arabia and Oman, trying to push more, more of their their own citizens into the private sector. Um, and that's a very necessary thing, but uh, it's, again, it's not something that, that, uh, that is it's easily done immediately. You know, over the years when there have been these revenue declines for the big oil exporters, they typically tend to react in kind of a pro-cyclical fashion by cutting spending at a time when a lot of governments around the world are actually spending more and having stimulus measures to try to promote growth and, and protect the economies. Um, how vulnerable do you think the Gulf states are if this low oil price continues for several quarters. Um, are there some countries in the Gulf you think are especially exposed? Um, and what do you think of the measures that have been taken so far to prepare for, for the worst? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. It's a very complex picture. So I think firstly, you know, if you think about the revenue side, so you mentioned Saudi Arabia tripling its value-added tax from 5% to 15%, the measure just announced. Um, so there have been attempts for quite a few years now to diversify the revenue base and to give governments uh, in the region more sources of, of revenues other than just uh, oil. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE introduced a value-added tax. Uh, um, and uh, and as, as we said, the Saudis recently increased that significantly. Um, but I think they're facing a tension here in the, in the short term, um, which is, you know, around the world, you've seen massive stimulus packages to help economies cope with the impact of the virus and, and shutdowns. Um, and uh, you know, those are essentially going to be funded, presumably eventually funded by government debt. Um, the Gulf countries have done that too, to an extent. They're trying to shield business and, and employment from, uh, from job losses and, and, uh, and the interruption to, to normal business activity. Um, but at the same time, of course, they face a, a huge collapse in oil prices and a collapse in, in a, what's still the, the major part of their revenues. And they have to cover that somehow. So they face this tension between doing stimulus, but then trying, also trying to cut expenditures, um, which, of course, is, uh, is contractionary in the, in the economy. Um, a very large part of the budget of the Gulf states goes on wages, salaries, current spending, uh, various subsidies and social services. Um, those things are very hard to cut. Um, of course, there have been efforts to cut salaries and, and cut state employment, but it's, um, that's uncomfortable and, and affects people quite directly. Um, government projects, of course, can be stopped. Capital spending can be stopped, but at some point there are capital projects that need to be done. And anyway, these projects filter through to the local economy in terms of employment and, 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 um, and spending. So... I think I understand why Saudi Arabia chose to triple its VAT. I mean, what it is, it's uh, it's a way to raise revenues without uh, going after salaries uh, and these other forms of state benefits. Um, and it's also a curb on consumption and a curb on imports, um, you know, effectively, 
um, since a very large part of consumption goods are imported. Um, so I think it's a way to, to target to target that without um, you know so without having to go after the, these these other very uh, tricky parts of state spending. So that, that I think makes sense to me. But you know you make the point on in the broader picture. Um, these governments have been trying for many years to diversify their sources of revenues, but they face the tension that when the oil price is low, they haven't got money to spend on diversification. And when the oil price is high, life is, is easier and there's not so much urgency to do things. You know, and so that although, although they have diversified over the years, they still, uh, still do remain very exposed to an oil price shock like the current one. Um, and that is, that is hard to, to get round. Uh, and even some of the businesses that, that, that they've diversified into have been badly affected by by this shock too, and I think that's that makes this particular this current shock particularly cruel, um, in that it's affecting things like, as we said earlier, trade, tourism, aviation, um, finance, um, the flow of the flow of people and, and services, uh, which seem like great diversification things to go into, um, and which, if this was a kind of a normal oil shock, uh, probably wouldn't be affected or would even be doing better. But in this particular shock, of course, they're also being very badly hit, um, and that is a. Then there's just no no easy way around that in the short term. Um, so that, that that is a that is a problem. I think that all the Gulf states face. If we think about the ones that are particularly affected, I mean, if we talk about the the UAE um, and Kuwait and Qatar, they are you know, relatively small countries. Their oil uh, production costs are low. The volumes are still uh, of exports are still large. Um, in the UAE's case, particularly, it has diversified the economy a lot over the years. Even though, as we say, that that's some of that parts of that are also affected by the crisis. Uh, they have large sovereign wealth funds. The budget deficits and the, the current account deficits are not so big. So you know they, they can survive and uh, they can get through this. It's uncomfortable, but it's but it's survivable. Um, if you look at Bahrain and Oman, they're in a much worse position. They have already have high government debt. They have only a small small sovereign wealth fund. Um, they have uh, their oil production is relatively small, relatively high cost, uh, and of course they're, they're having to cut it anyway in, in compliance with the OPEC Plus deal. Um, and although although the Bahraini economy in particular is, is is reasonably diversified, the sources of government revenue are not very diversified, uh, and so they are very exposed. Um, and I think we'll see them coming under significant pressure in the next few few months, particularly if oil prices stay where they are. Um, and then in the middle of this all, you've got the, the, the big beast, Saudi Arabia, which is, is somewhat in the middle. It does have large sovereign wealth holdings, has a lot of financial resources, um, but it is still, although dependence on all revenues for the government budget has gone down, it's still very high. And Saudi Arabia, again, it can cope for two or three years, of course, of lower oil prices, and it can cut its budget and, and raise revenues, but, but a longer-term crisis is, uh, certainly does, d- does demand a big rethink. Um, if we can pivot a little bit more to the energy sector, this is a time when companies around the world are responding to the oil price downturn by cutting capital expenditures, curtailing their growth plans, really being much less ambitious about producing oil and gas. Uh, but what about the NOCs in this region? How do you see COVID-19 and the oil price downturn affecting the Middle Eastern NOCs plans? So, you know, the pressures on the Middle East NOCs are, are somewhat different from what they would be on, on the international oil companies, the, the IOCs. Um, the NSCs had really ambitious plans over the past few years for downstream diversification. So they wanted to get more into refining, um, into petrochemicals. Uh, they already had big businesses in those sectors, but they wanted to, to grow them even more. They wanted to 
uh, anchor demand in their key clients. So they wanted to have more presence in China, India uh, in, in particular, but also in, in other Asian countries, uh, talk about Vietnam or Indonesia. Um, they wanted to, to grow there as well, um, where the key sources of future oil demand. Um, so that was a very important part. They wanted to do more in gas, uh, particularly domestically. So Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, in particular Kuwait or Oman also have been short of domestic gas uh, over the past few years. They had big plans to increase their, their gas production, including unconventional gas, um, including sour gas uh, with with a lot of uh, hydrogen sulfide content, so costly, expensive to, to develop. Um, so they had, they had big plans for that sector. In the oil production sector, not so much, um, exception to the UAE, which has pretty aggressive plans to grow its oil production capacity up to 5 million barrels per day, um, and with four million reaching 4 million in, in the short term. Um, Saudi Arabia was, was not planning to increase its production capacity. Um, so the, the view was, well, the oil market is, is only growing slowly. We've been under OPEC plus cuts for now for three or four years. Um, those might be relaxed, but still there wasn't a, a need to put on a lot of extra production capacity quickly. Now, we've been through a real roller coaster the past couple of months, of course, because in, you know, the OPEC plus deal fell apart and, and the UAE said it would ramp up its production very quickly to four million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia, Aramco said that it had been told to, to add a million barrels per day of production capacity, um, which would be big news and a, and a big, a big uh, change of plan for it. Um, then the OPEC plus deal did come back together with very steep cuts. And now, you know, those production expansion plans are not, are not nearly as, uh, as urgent as, as they seemed. So, you know, I, I think at the moment, the companies are in the mode of, of trying to cut costs, um, trying to reassess their, their, their big capital projects, not cancel them yet, but certainly reassess them, try to reduce costs, try to get, squeeze some savings out of contractors. You know, we've seen both Aramco and, and, and Adnoc, the Abu Dhabi. National Oil Company looking for thirty percent savings from contractors, um, and uh, and Adnoc has, has delayed some of its big offshore sour gas plans uh, at least for a, for a few months. They'll have to see obviously what does the domestic economy look like when we start coming out of this crisis, um, and how quickly does world oil demand uh, recover, and and what has happened to supply. So what does the supply demand balance look like? Have we permanently lost a lot of supply from the U.S. or Canada? Is shale or uh, is shale declining, or, or do the shale oil guys manage to make a comeback? So, really, very early days to say that, and on whether a lot of extra oil production capacity will, will be needed, and whether the domestic economy will need a lot of gas. Um, but these companies tend to to plan for the long the long term. They 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 don't uh, shift position as kind of quickly and, and nimbly as the IOCs do. But uh, but on the other hand, when they're committed to, to projects, they they generally have a lot of momentum behind them. You mentioned gas and the issue of uh, gas development being uh, kind of a critical goal in Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia. How do you see this downturn affecting gas consumption in the Middle East? I see you argued in a recent paper that gas demand growth in the region, which has been extremely strong for uh, 10 years or more, will actually slow for multiple reasons. Do you expect that to continue? Do you expect an even sharper decline? given the economic conditions in the region? Yeah, so as you say, you know, Middle East gas demand has grown very strongly over the past uh, couple of decades. It's, it's been the second largest region for gas demand growth in, in the world after Asia, which I think is kind of amazing given the population of the Middle East is 
is relatively small compared to the, that in Asia, and that the Middle East, even 20 years ago, was already a, a big user of gas, and, and yet it's managed to grow demand enormously. Uh, and I think there was a view by some that this very fast demand growth would, would pretty much continue. Um, but I think we're seeing some major structural reasons why that's not going to happen and why gas demand growth in the Middle East is going to show down, slow down very sharply. Firstly is the economy. You know, the, the economy was already slowing even before the uh, COVID-19. Um, you know, we had four years of lower oil prices um, and, and just generally maturing economies. Second reason was efficiency. There's been a big push on improving energy efficiency in the region. The energy efficiency is still, is still pretty low, um, but there have been a big push to make it less, less wasteful, um, to cut energy subsidies. So most countries in the region have increased electricity prices and increased natural gas prices, uh, road fuel prices, all in an attempt to, um, to slow down uh, energy consumption growth and to, uh, and to save on, on the, the, the unsustainable amounts they were, they were putting into these subsidies. Um, along with that has been, that affects of course the industrial competitiveness. So over the past few years we've seen a lot of uh, industrial facilities, petrochemicals, methanol, aluminium, steel, that were all built in the region with the predicate that they were going to get very cheap fuel, uh, whether gas or oil, um, and that would make them competitive, you know, which it did. But now that cheap oil and gas has been allocated, um, subsidies are going away. So it's so new industry has to be economically viable on its own merits, not, not just on the basis of getting cheap fuel. Uh, and then we've seen a, a huge uh, expansion in, in the prospects for alternative energy in the region. And, and I mean here alternatives to, to natural gas. So we're even seeing some coal, you know, a dirty fuel, but uh, a diversification of the fuel mix. We're seeing nuclear power, particularly in the UAE, the, the new, first UAE's first uh, nuclear reactor due to start up uh, operations very soon. And that will displace a lot of gas uh, from the power sector. And then most promisingly in the long term renewables, of course, and particularly solar power. And we've seen this region, we've seen Saudi Arabia, UAE, both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, consistently setting world records for the cheapest solar power in the world, uh, and they will continue to do so, and the project is getting bigger and bigger. Abu Dhabi just uh, awarded a two gigawatt solar PV project. Um, Saudi Arabia has big plans. Some other countries have been further behind, but, but Oman, Qatar, uh, now starting to catch up, now starting to award their own big projects. Um, and then the non-oil countries in the region also, if we talk about uh, uh, Egypt, for example, Jordan, doing very well in solar power. So there's been a huge acceleration of that. And I think, you know, as solar continues to get cheaper and as technology improves and, and we gain ability in balancing grids and batteries, uh, uh, using batteries more effectively, battery costs come down. So all of these factors will drive very strong solar growth. And so the region, uh, I think the gas demand in the region is going to shift from the power sector to the um, much rather more to the industrial sector and overall demand growth will slow down. Well, you've touched a few times on energy subsidies in the region. <clears throat> we saw after the 2014 oil price downturn, some pretty significant changes in energy pricing and subsidy reform really for the first time um, in the Gulf states. It used to be taboo to talk about curtailing or removing energy subsidies. Um, of course, there has been some backtracking there, but I'm curious with the, the economic pain that's coming in the Gulf uh, and maybe elsewhere in the region too. Should we expect more energy subsidy reforms? Is this too politically difficult or too economically um, difficult for citizens at a time uh, when we have this economic pain? Uh, do you expect more energy subsidy reform coming down the road? Well, it, you know, it's a patchy picture. Um, 
and and it really it depends very much by country. It depends very much by the by the, by the fuel or by the, the type of energy. You know, if we take uh, uh, the UAE for example, I mean UAE road fuel, uh, gasoline, diesel has been uh, basically has been unsubsidized. It's it's been at world market prices for several years now. Um, if we talk about Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has increased road fuel prices, but it, they still remain very very cheap. Now I think the current collapse in oil prices, it, it's in a way it's an ideal opportunity to remove remaining subsidies because maybe the current price is actually is already the world market price just because world market prices have fallen so much or, or at least maybe with only increasing prices modestly you can get to a, a world price and then once you've established the link then uh, you know when and if all, all prices go up you can you can increase those prices allow those prices to increase along with the, the world market so i think this it's a very uh, propitious time for energy subsidy reform uh, there are other countries in the region like Kuwait, which have done very little, and there's a strong political opposition, parliamentary opposition and, and, and public opinion opposition to, to, to getting rid of subsidies. Um, there have been various proposals to reform electricity prices. They remain incredibly cheap. Um, you know, they're at uh, 0.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, I think US retail rates are getting towards 10 cents a kilowatt hour, and, and Kuwait prices have not increased since the 1960s. So... Um, you know, really just incredibly cheap power, which of course leads to very wasteful consumption, but it, but it's very hard to change. So really, it's a very it's a very patchy picture. Um, but yes, I think the, the oil price crash and the economic struggles will give more impetus to subsidy reform. In the short term, we've seen governments giving some breaks on, on ele ele electricity prices, for example, to try to help business. But I think that's, that's, that's fine. Those are short term things. And, and anyway, the cost of electricity production has come down because, of course, fuel prices have have come down, you know, even if that's not if that's not explicitly re reflected in uh, in government prices, but but it is reflected in in the prices for exports. Uh, short term breaks for prices fine, but yes, I think in, in the long term there'll be more impetus for subsidy reform, and that that is one place that it's environmentally attractive, it's economically attractive, uh, and it helps the government balance its budget. So, Robin, we've talked a lot about the Gulf states today, uh, but there are two other big oil and gas producing states in the region: Iraq and Iran. I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on how they're dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and uh, thoughts on where the energy sector is headed in those two states. Yeah, so these, these two, Iran and Iraq, of course, in a very, very different situation from, from their Gulf neighbours. Um, in Iran, in a funny way, you know, comes out of this better in the sense that sanctions have already cut its oil production so much and, and its oil exports so much um, that, that a fall in prices doesn't actually make too much difference to its revenues. Um, and Iran's economy has, has been forced by sanctions to become fairly self-sufficient and, and fairly diversified. Um, nevertheless, the sanctions and the fall in oil price and the virus shock, of course, altogether are a, a huge shock for the Iranian economy. Um, and uh, you know, at the moment, the government is uh, keeping the lid on things through through step, stepping up repression. Um, but this is uh, this has been a, a, a huge economic shock for the country. Um, but largely, unfortunately, of course, the ordinary people have to have to bear it and, and suffer the uh, a serious virus outbreak alongside loss of, of jobs and, and income and so on. Um, Iraq, I think, is, you know, is again, is an interesting and unusual case in itself. Um, Iraq has been hit by simultaneous crises. I mean, the virus which has not affected Iraq too badly. Um, but of course, that's still still uh, to be seen if it gets worse there. Um, but alongside that, you know, the, the legacy of many years of a very poor and failing public services, um, obviously security threats. We've seen some rebound of, of, of ISIS threats recently 
um, not to the levels that we're at in 2014, but still that's always a, a worry at the back of people's minds. Obviously the US-Iran tensions, which, which continue, and a large part of that is played out in Iraq, and the fall of the, the government last year and with public, very major public protests, 500, more than 500 demonstrators killed, um, and a new government, which is only just uh, a new prime minister, uh, which have only just been established. Uh, and of course, they're then coming into a crisis with very low oil prices, um, with OPEC production cuts that they're, that they're expected to make. Um, so you know, if we go back to last April, so April 2019, um, Iraq earned about $7 billion from oil exports in that month. If we go back to last month, so April 2020, Iraq exported about the same amount of oil uh, and it made just over a billion dollars. Um, so you can see in that sense how much the budget has collapsed and, and how the Iraqi government simply doesn't have money for salaries uh, and for its own social welfare, let alone uh, for, for any kind of investment, which is badly needed. So Iraq faces an immediate financial crisis. The new government's having to get to grips with that straight away, um, but in the context of a, of a politically very fragile situation. So, so Iraq faces uh, massive challenges um, and the the oil and gas sector, as as usual, will will, will be is required to be the, be the backbone of the the fiscal response. But there's a lot of complex issues like the OPEC cuts and how they're shared out between the companies, whether the or the international companies are still going to receive a fee for for producing oil, even though they're required to uh, to cut cut back the, the production. If the oil production is cut back, will there be enough associated gas for power? We're coming into the summer. Temperatures are going up. There's more need for air conditioning. That's usually a time of public protest in Iraq when, when the electricity goes off. So these are some pretty practical issues that the new government is confronting immediately. Uh, and this, of course, all has implications for, for their neighbours as well. Uh, the the U.S.-Iran tensions, uh, but also for any resurgence of, of instability in, uh, in Iraq. Well, Robin, thank you so much for all your insights today. This is terrific. Uh, Robin Mills, CEO of Connor Energy. Thank you so much for joining us. Yep, thank you. Thanks for listening to Energy 360. Look for more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Look for us at CSIS.org and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.